uh, before we get started, uh, those of you who are joining us in Somerset and Williamsburg uh, at the 1130 today, you, you don't know this, but we've been over here bragging about last weekend and what a great Easter it was for all of our campuses and specifically for our Somerset and Williamsburg campus. And I thought we'd take a moment over here in London. Can we put our hands and say congratulations to Williamsburg and Somerset for such a big weekend last weekend? Incredible, incredible. Um, now, I don't know what some of your childhood memories are about church, but I've got all kinds and, and some are good and some not so good, but some of my earliest memories of church as a kid had to do with Sunday nights. Now, for some of you, I, I know what you're thinking. What in the world did church and Sunday night have to do with each other? Well, once upon a time, there was a time when people would go to church on Sunday morning and you know, sing the songs, pray the prayers, listen to the sermon. And then you would leave church, you'd go have some lunch, you'd make a few pit stops, maybe uh, get a nap in, maybe not. And then you would just go back Sunday night and do the whole thing all over again. It wasn't the same service as the morning, but it was different. Music was different. Choir was never as good on Sunday night as what they were Sunday morning, but you got used to that. The sermon, mm, it was kind of like a sermonette on Sunday night, but hey, you got used to that. And, and But you went back on Sunday night because because that's just what you did when you loved the church and you loved the pastor and you loved Jesus. You just didn't know what else to do other than go to church on Sunday night. Well, after church on Sunday night, my parents, you know, would usually hang around after church down front or outside and just be talking to a large group of their friends. And um, what would usually always be the case, they would decide who's having people over that night. And so one of their friends would be the host. Sometimes it was my parents, sometimes it was others, but, but a group of their friends would get together and they would go to somebody's house for snacks and for conversation and just just to hang out for a few more hours. And that was basically every Sunday evening. And invariably, my dad, who, who was a deacon in the church I grew up in, uh, would be in the other room, in the living room with a bunch of men, some of the other deacons, not all of them were deacons, but they would invariably get in the other room and they would start having conversations about the Bible. And so I can remember this as a kid. I mean, you know, they would talk about these epic stories and then they would, you know, meander out loud with their questions or their curiosity and, you know, and they would just talk. And sometimes those conversations were filled with laughter and sometimes there were tears in those conversations. You know, people would get really emotional, you know, talking about these, these stories. And, and back then I didn't know, but man, I look back today and I'm like, man, that was a treasure. That, that was really, that was really a cool, you know, part of my childhood. And, but at the moment, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't all that special to me because I wanted to be somewhere else usually. But I can remember, you know, when I was second and third and fourth grade, I can remember that basically every Sunday night of my life. And on a few occasions, on a few occasions, uh, the conversation would drift in the direction of the end times or the end of the world. And, and I would sit over in the corner and I would just be listening to all of these men talk about the Bible and what the Bible says about the end of the world. And I remember them quoting different verses of scripture. And I thought about it this week and I, I, I chuckled and I said, I'm just gonna write down, you know, what I remember them quoting. And, and remember, I'm like second or third grade, I'm over in the corner and I'm listening to all these men. And I remember one night they started quoting, and the earth will burn up and its elements will melt with a fervent heat. And I'm sitting over there thinking, can I just get through the third grade first? Can I... Can I, just elementary school, can I get out of there? The sun will be darkened and the moon will become as blood. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens be shaken. And I'm like, I guess so, because I'm shaken right now. And, 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 it's, and then I would hear, you know, you know uh, 
references to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And, and I swear I could hear the hoofbeats until I realized it was my heart pounding in my chest. And I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, and they would quote those verses. And I saw up on the fourth horse, the pale horse, a man, and it was death and all of hell followed with him. And I was just sitting over there and I, I was flipping the freak out. And I, I would just sit over there. I was like kind of nervous, couldn't stop listening. Uh, but that's how, that's how I'd feel for the longest time, you know, hearing people talk about that. And I tell you that to say this, I don't want anybody to feel that way uh, when we're talking about this for the next couple of weeks. I don't think that this content was ever intended to provoke fear or anxiety or unease or, or making people feel unsettled. Uh, I don't think that that was the point and I feel like it's a terrible thing. So if somewhere along the way, when people talked about the end or people talked about, you know, the last things, if that caused you a certain amount, you know, of anxiety or stress, or, or discomfort, I, I'm really sorry for you. Uh, Phil, I'm sorry on behalf of you and behalf of the church because I, I just don't think it was ever, I just don't think it was ever intended uh, to be that way uh, because this is something that's important and we're gonna talk about it, uh, but I feel like we, we, we just need to clear that up first. The goal is not to make anybody anxious or stressed or afraid, all right? So with that said, let's just, let's just jump in and start here. We care a lot about endings. Uh, we just do. We, we care about how books end. You know, we want a great book to have an equally great ending. Uh, it, it's not, you know, a, an, un, an unjust expectation to think just because, you know, this was a great book that the ending can just be, you know, whatever. We want a great book to have an ending that's rivaled with it. We, we want it to be a great ending. Uh, Shakespeare, he understood this. And, and, and he took, you know, one of the most famous stories, you know, in English literature and, and really, you know, stories in all of the world. And, and he decided to end it this way. For never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. Like, oh my God, William knew how to do it. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's like, man, you know, in one of my favorite books uh, growing up, I think I read it my freshman year, or my sophomore year, but it, it was The Great Gatsby. And, and it's such a great, such a great story about such a great era, you know, in, in, in American history and the roaring 20s. And they were doing a new dance called the Charleston and all that kind of good stuff. And it was just a great story. Uh, but then he gets to the end of the book. And I mean, it's been a great, it's been a great story. And he gets to the very last line of the book and he says, so we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past, the end. It's like, oh my God, it's amazing. It's like, what does it mean? Didn't matter. It sounds incredible. I mean, it's like, that's Wow, that's a great way to end this book. I mean, it's just, it's just super. And so, you know, we care about how things end. We care about how books end. We care about how movies end. We want a great movie to have a great ending because you can have a great movie that's get, that gets ruined with the ending, you know? And you know, I'm well documented at how much I hate the movie Titanic. I have told you about it many, many times. I, I will forever be bitter towards Rose for not scooting over and let Jack on the floating piece of wood. But again, I've told you about it, it's well documented. But it's just not that, it's something worse than that. It's just not selfish Rose who won't scoot over and let Jack on, it's Granny Rose. It's Granny Rose in the last scene of the movie because you know the treasure that this crew's been looking for, we find out that she's got one of those priceless you know, pieces of jewelry. I mean, just worth untold amounts of money. And, and, and then she walks out to the, to the edge of the boat and you know what she does? She throws it in the chilly Atlantic and you're thinking, well, that's just dumb. 
That's just dumb because one, it's bad stewardship. Two, I mean, Rose, you were selfish then. You're selfish now. What about your granddaughter? What about her kids? I mean, you could have set up a foundation. You could have made a charity. You, you, I mean, you could have done so many things. And I was like, this is the dumbest thing. It's, I hate that movie. But anyway, so a terrible ending. Or you can have a great ending like, uh, what was the name of the movie? Uh, the Sixth Sense. How many of y'all remember that from like the late 90s? You know, Bruce Willis. I'm not gonna ruin it for you because apparently none of you have seen it. Uh, but M. Night Shyamalan kind of got famous because of the curveball ending that he throws at the end. And then you watch that movie and you get to the very end and you're like, Mine, it's like, oh my gosh, that's incredible. That's amazing. So we care about endings. We care about the endings of books. We care about the endings of movies. And we certainly care about an ending to the world, an ending to history or an ending to time in some way as, as we know it. Matter of fact, when you read through history, it becomes really clear that humans have cared about the end of the world from the beginning of the world. Uh, matter of fact, some of the earliest writings that we have out of antiquity uh, comes from an Assyrian clay tablet uh, that is dated to about 2800 BC. So we're talking about, you know, close to 5,000 years ago. And, and listen to what someone <laughs> wrote 5,000 years ago and see, see if it doesn't sound contemporary in, in its thought and sentiment. Listen to what the writer says. Our earth is degenerate in these latter days says the writer 5,000 years ago. There are signs that the world is speedily, speedily, I say, coming to an end. Bribery and corruption are common. Children no longer obey their parents. So mom, dad, it's just not you. And it's just not them. I mean, this has been going on a while. Every man wants to write a book, or I think we could say make a post or declare a position, you know, be a self-appointed authority. And the end of the world, the end of the world is evidently approaching. So even back 5,000 years ago, there was this general expectation that somehow, someday, in some way, there would be an ending to the world as, as we know it. Um, the major religions of the world, Judaism, Christianity, uh, Islam, Hinduism, uh, they all have a form of thought that's directed uh, towards what we would call the end of the world or the last days or the end of history. And, and, and each one has an explanation as if there's just this intuitive idea that endings are inevitable, even when it comes to history. And so people have been you know, infatuated with this. Uh, Christopher Columbus, uh, he predicted that the end of the world would be 7,000 years after creation. I'm not sure how he found out the date of that, but 7,000 years from creation, which he said was 1658. And of course, you know, it's 20, uh, you know, we're, we're a few years after that. We're 2022 and, and we're still here. So he was wrong. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton, he predicted that the end of the world would be 1260 years after the birth of the Holy Roman Empire, which comes out to be 2060. So we'll have to hold our breath and wait and see. Uh, but also there was a global sustainability study that was done a few years ago that also uh, dated uh, that, the, that the earth would lose its ability to sustain itself somewhere around the year 2060. So do, 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 I don't know. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see if Sir Isaac knew something that nobody else has known. There was a guy who published a book in 1988, 88 Reasons Why the World is Gonna end in 1988, here we are. So, so people have, have, have toyed with this, been infatuated with this to the point 
that a lot of people are either attracted to this content, this conversation, or some people are repelled by it. Uh, they've seen people sensationalize it, or they've seen people overreact and trivialize it, uh, where you know it's just not important at all. Or for some people, it's all important. That's all they want to talk about. And, and so for people who are left somewhere in the middle, uh, oftentimes we can neglect talking about it. And, and I just want us all to know that, hey, this is an important thing to talk about because there's so much in the scriptures, both old and new, about this very idea, about this topic. Now, Christians, Christians believe that Jesus came and he died and he was buried and he was raised from the dead. We believe that he ascended back to God and we believe that he's coming again. And the reason that we believe that he's coming again the second time is because of what we talked about last week on Easter. It's because the tomb is empty. And if the resurrection is true, and we believe that it is, if the resurrection is true, then we have to take everything that Jesus said about everything seriously. We just don't get to pick and choose what we think Jesus you know, said was important or not important. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then we have to take everything that Jesus said seriously, including what he said about the last things, including what he said about the end of history. So today, I want us to look at one particular passage of scripture where Jesus was asked about this directly. Jesus was asked a question about this very thing. And it's found in Matthew chapter 24. And, and Jesus's words can seem a bit alarming. It can seem a bit unnerving. Uh, but the one thing that it has proven to be is that his words in some cases are a bit confusing. Confusing in the sense that a lot of Christians can read this chapter and come with different conclusions about what Jesus meant by what he said. So one Christian who loves Jesus, who loves all things Christian, uh, can read this particular passage and, and come out with an entirely different perspective than another person who loves Jesus and loves all things Christian. So Christians don't agree on all the details. But that's okay, we can continue to dialogue about that and we can continue to ask questions of each other and, and poke holes in each other's positions because everybody's position on this has certain deficits. Uh, no one perspective is 100% foolproof. So there's problems you know, in how we understand the details. And, and it makes me believe that perhaps Jesus didn't consider us understanding the details of that much importance. But what we can understand is the most important thing, which is the point behind what Jesus is gonna say. So a lot of Christians will have different perspectives on the details of what Jesus is about to say, and they will disagree about the parts. But the one thing that we don't disagree on is the point behind what Jesus was saying. The point couldn't be clearer. So this is how Matthew records it. He says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call attention to its buildings. Now, the context of what's happened is, is that Jesus, on the Monday of his last week that we talked about last week, he rode in to Jerusalem on Sunday. On Monday, he goes to the temple and he cleanses the temple for the final time. He turns over the tables of the money changers and he says, hey, this is a house, a den of thieves. This is a den of thieves, and it was a stinging rebuke. And so this has just happened. Uh, Jesus has also finished a longer rebuke of the religious establishment where he calls them snakes. And he says that by your mission work, you're actually causing people to be twice the son of hell than what they were before they met you. He says, the only prophets you people love are dead ones because the living ones speak truth to you. The living ones challenge your status quo. They challenge your ideas. They challenge your belief. And the 
only prophets that you and your fathers have ever loved are dead ones. That's why they killed them. And had you lived in your father's day, you would have killed them as well. That's why you're out here decorating their tombs because the only kind of prophets you like are dead ones. And it's like, wow. And so Jesus, he, he gave this rebuke. And as he walks out of the temple, he says these words that maybe you've heard quoted before. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often I have wanted to gather your children together like a hen will her chicks, but you would not. You would not. And then he walks out of the temple and he says, your house, not God's house, your house, this temple is left desolate. Because God, this is not his house. This has not been his house for centuries. The glory and the presence of God has departed this. This is your house and it is left desolate. It is a den of thieves. And and it was quite the uproar. And that's the reason they're gonna kill him a few days later. But Jesus walks out of the temple that day. They walk across the Kidron Valley. They walk up the Temple Mount. And then they begin to look back over to the Temple Mount, over to the temple complex with all the buildings that made up the temple. And so Jesus says, do you see all of these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And for his disciples, this was unthinkable because the temple was the center of all things Jewish. It was the center of the Jewish faith. It was the center of Jewish economics, of of Jewish politics, uh, of of Jewish culture and society. So this was the epicenter of Jewish life. And and so they were a bit shaken by it. And and it was a bit unsettling and probably maybe took their breath away a little bit because they looked at this magnificent structure that King Herod had built and they're thinking, it's gonna be destroyed. And, and, And another reason why it was so unthinkable is because of how big the stones are that actually were used to build the temple. And I've, I've been to the Temple Mount. Some of you may have been to the Temple Mount. And you can go to the substructure of what's left of the temple and you can see the stones uh, that made up the foundation of the temple because Jesus, he's predicting that the temple will be destroyed. And in about a few decades, by the year 70 AD, Jesus's words will ring true when Titus and the legions of Rome storm into Jerusalem and they destroy the temple. So they hear this, his disciples, and they're thinking, oh my goodness, what kind of force is it gonna take to tear down this temple? Because some of those those stones were 40 by 12 by 12, 40 feet by 12 by 12. I mean, they weighed hundreds of tons. Some of those stones, a single cut, were 85 feet long. I mean, we're, we're talking about enormous stones. I mean, it was, it was really a wonder of the ancient world. And, and, and no one could have ever conceived that this edifice could actually be torn down because these stones, which laid on top of each other, they were so heavy. They were so large. But Jesus said, hey, they're all gonna fall down and there's not gonna be one left on another when this thing gets destroyed. And so they're they're listening to this. And it says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately because they've been scratching their head. It's bothered them uh, what Jesus said. And they they just can't conceive of an event that would end up with a destroyed Jewish temple. And, And so they came to him privately and they said, tell us, we can't stop thinking about this. Tell us, when will this happen? That's the first part of the question. When will this happen? When will this temple be destroyed? That's the first part of the question. The second part of the question is, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Because in their mind, they did not conceive of two advents. They didn't conceive that the Messiah would come once, that he would die for sin, he would be buried, that he would be raised from the dead, that he would ascend back to heaven and then one day in the future come again. They had no conception of that. Their understanding of the Messiah was when he comes, 
He will deliver his people and he will set up his kingdom. He will sit on the throne of David and he will rule Israel and he will rule the nations. That's what they thought. So when they came into town on Sunday, when everybody was saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They thought that Jesus was about to inaugurate his kingdom. They thought that he was gonna walk up the temple mount and sit down on the throne of David and begin to rule in glory and power. They thought all of that was just a few days away. And so they're like, hey, Jesus, is this like next Thursday? Is this like, you know, tell us, cause you know, that whole coming in glory thing, we kind of like it because we're kind of your guys. We're, we're kind of close to this and we feel like we're probably gonna have, you know, a pretty important position in your kingdom that you're about to set up. And so they were asking these two major questions. When is this temple gonna be destroyed that you, you talked about a moment ago? And what's gonna be the sign of your coming when you come in glory and power, when you sit on the throne and you rule the nations and, and of the end of the age, because they assumed those two things would happen at the same time, that there would be an end of the age when the Messiah would be revealed in his power and his glory, and he would rule over the nations. So they were asking these questions. And so Jesus, he begins to answer their questions. And this is what he says. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. Now, it, it just seems like Jesus is ignoring their question, but he is answering their question because as Jesus understood the unfolding of time, as he saw time unfolding into the future, he saw that deception would become more and more prevalent. And Jesus saw the progression of time leading closer and closer to his return as a time of growing spiritual deception. And so Jesus said, listen, let me tell you how this is gonna work and let me tell you how this is gonna happen and let me just answer your questions. He said, but first let me start by saying, see to it that you do not become deceived by another person or even by yourself. Be very careful that you do not believe a lie and think it to be the truth. Because there's few things more devastating in your life and on this planet than believing a lie and thinking it to be the truth. When you can't tell the difference between what is untrue and true, that is a very dangerous predicament to be in. So Jesus said, the closer that we get to the end of the age, the closer that we get to the sign of my coming, he said, people are gonna grow more and more deceived. You're gonna see people believing a lie and they believe it to be truth. That's why they're gonna be so passionate about it. That's why they're gonna be so vocal about it. They're gonna believe a lie, but they're gonna be convinced that's the truth. They're gonna be deceived. Now, the Apostle Paul, he will write later on in the New Testament that there would be a day, there would be an era of time, the closer that we get to the coming of Jesus, that in what he called the last days or towards the end of days, that people would only wanna be told what they want to hear, not what they need to hear, that people would have a growing aversion to what is true, that people would be growingly more and more offended by what is true, that truth People would become intolerant of truth. Believe it or not, imagine such a thing. People would become intolerant of the truth. They wouldn't wanna hear the truth. So they'll get people around them who will tell them what they wanna hear. He calls it, you know, teachers who will tickle their ears. That people will find a belief system that accommodates how they want to live. That people will find a value system that accommodates the decisions they wanna make. That people will adopt a theology that allows them to feel comfortable with themselves and the world around them. There's at least 11 major warnings in the New Testament about being deceived. And Jesus is speaking to them and Jesus is speaking to us and Jesus is saying to every person who would follow him in every generation, be very careful 
not to be deceived. Do the hard work of finding out what is true and what is not true so that you do not believe a lie and think it to be the truth. And so Jesus said, let's start there. And then he continues, he said, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. This happened in the years leading up to Jesus and his arrival into history. This was a kind of a common thing. You know, in the Jewish culture, people would claim to be the Messiah all the time. Uh, people would claim to be the Messiah after Jesus and he just gives them a warning. He says, and then you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. See to it that you're not alarmed. Let's just read that part together. You ready? On three, one, two, three. See to it that you're not alarmed. Don't freak out, don't stress out, don't be anxious because that's not the purpose of why I'm telling you this. This is just history, it's gonna play itself out the way that history always plays itself out. Wars and rumors of wars, does that sound like anything new? No. Does that sound like anything fresh? No. Kinda sounds like history since sin entered into the world. That there's violence, that there's wars, that there's rumors of wars. Jesus said, listen, History is just gonna keep on playing itself out the way that history has always played itself out. And part of his point is this is not anything new. So it's not like you're looking into the future for something new to happen. I'm telling you that things are just gonna keep on repeating itself until the end of the age, until I come again. So when it comes to wars and rumors of war, this is not new. Since 1945 and World War II, there's only been like a few weeks where there's not been a major conflict somewhere on the planet. Since 1945, there's been somewhere north of 250 major conflicts on the planet. So this is nothing new. And so Jesus said, don't freak out. This is not to freak you out. You shouldn't hear this and be like, oh, oh no. Wars and rumors of wars. He was like, what? This is history. This has always been history. And it's just gonna keep on happening over and over and over again. He says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That's all of history. That's before Jesus, that's during the days of Jesus, that's been since the days of Jesus over the last 2,000 years. There will be famines, there will be earthquakes in various places. And it's like a lot, of, a lot of Christians, we read this and we're just thinking future, 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 future. And we're thinking, okay, we gotta keep on a look for these things. And Jesus is actually making the opposite point. He says, these things aren't new. These are repetitive things that happen throughout history that are gonna keep on happening. Don't expect history to become anything different than what it's always been. That's part of his point. Don't expect the world to become something that it's never been. That's, that's the point. And so us over here in America, you know, with our Western perspectives, and sometimes it's a good thing, but sometimes it's a very limiting thing. But here we are over here in America and we're, we're interpreting everything through our American eyes and our American experience. And we're like, okay, you know, what does this mean? You know, we need to, you know, these famines that are coming and these earthquakes that are coming and these conflicts that are coming. You know, and so you hear a lot of Christians, they'll start trying to sensationalize. They'll talk about Russia and North Korea and, and North Africa and the Middle East and, and, and all of these things. But that was, wasn't the point of what Jesus was saying at all. I think Jesus would remind us in our current generation, we're not looking for something out there. I'm telling you, he says it's present in every generation. I think he would remind us that there's 811 million people on this planet who will go to bed hungry tonight. Almost a billion people will go to bed hungry tonight on this planet. I think that Jesus would want us to take a moment and be reminded that 25,000 people will die of hunger. 
25,000 people will die of hunger and hunger-related diseases, that 11 people will die every minute because of hunger on this planet. So it's not something, hey, I, I, wanna, I want to you know, point you to the future. I want you to be on lookout for these things. These things are. They may not be part of your story. They may not be part of our experience in the West, but this is a very real reality. It has always been a very real reality. The scarcity of food, the shortage of food, uh, the scarcity of food went up 20 some percent just because of the last couple of years in production lines and you know, pandemic related causes. So this is not something you know, out there someday, some way. This is Jesus's point. This stuff is all around. These things are just gonna keep on happening. I think he would want us to be reminded that there's 20,000 earthquakes a year on this planet. 20,000, 55 or so every single day. So Jesus said, these things are just gonna keep on happening. And he says, all of these are the beginning, are the beginning of birth pains. Now, I know this is gonna come a shock. I, I'm not a woman, I've never been pregnant. I, I don't know what that's like, but I was there when Allison had both of the boys and, and she's, she's an OBGYN, a good friend down here on the front, another OBGYN. So if I say anything, uh, Krista, that's out of line, just correct me. But what I understand about birth pains is they kind of start slow and infrequent. And then they kind of go faster in frequency and severity. Is that pretty close? Okay, that's it. All the women would say amen to that. All right. And, and so Jesus is saying, listen, these things are like birth pains. They kind of start slow and infrequent because the population is so dispersed, but populations are gonna grow. Technology is gonna enhance. And, and, and these things are just gonna grow faster in frequency and severity. The consequences and the stakes are just gonna get higher and higher. And it's just gonna keep on that this is the story of history. So don't expect anything any different. Don't, don't expect some type of utopian earth that's never gonna be a reality. He says, these things are just gonna continue. And, and then he looks at his disciples and he says, uh, not only are things just gonna continue to escalate, he said, but you, you're gonna be handed over to be persecuted and be put to death and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. Now, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. Then this is Jesus talking to disciples in every subsequent generation after those guys. So who's he talking to? He's talking to them. He's talking to us. He's talking to all Jesus followers. And this is what I love about the Jesus of the gospels. He doesn't hold anything back. I mean, he just, I mean, that, you imagine how uncomfortable that would have been to hear, how uncomfortable that would have been, you know, to say, you guys are going to be arrested. You're going to be flogged. You're going to be dragged before kings and governors and councils. And, and you're, you're going to lose your life. You're going to be hated because of me. And again, over here in the West, it's so easy for us to read that and think, okay, th this event that lies somewhere out there where there's gonna be a persecution and, and, and it's, so, it's so limited and self-centered and it's, it's, it's so neglectful of the reality of the planet on which we live because last year, Last year, there were 360 million people on the planet living in places of high levels of persecution. 360 million Christians living in places that had high levels of persecution. Of what can be tracked, and the number's probably higher, but there was over 5,800 people who were killed last year on this planet because of their faith. There are 5,100 plus churches that were attacked because they were churches. And every day on this planet, every day on this planet, 13 people die because of their faith. So this is not something way out there in the future. This is something that's around us even now. 
This is something that's playing out now. It has always been playing out. It, is, it has always been present in every generation, though it may not be my experience and your experience. And, and as Americans, we're a bit spoiled a little bit, as I said. You know, we're at the point where we're so comfy over here in the West and in America, American Christians, they think when somebody disagrees with them, it's persecution. When someone disagrees with you, that is not persecution. When people do not act the way that you wish that they would act, that is not persecution. When political leaders care less and less about your ideas about what society is supposed to look like, that is not persecution. Persecution is you're gonna be handed over. You're gonna be imprisoned. You're gonna be beaten. You may even die. That's persecution. And Jesus says, and at that time, many will turn away from the faith and they will betray and hate each other. Why will they turn away from the faith? Because when faith proves to be inconvenient, the convenient thing seems to be lose your faith. When faith proves to become this inconvenience, losing faith seems to be the convenient thing to do. And here's the thing again about Jesus in the gospels. He never uses convenience as a motivating factor of why we should follow him. Jesus said, if you're expecting things to get better in your life just because you follow me in the sense that it gets easier, that there's gonna be less trouble, that there's gonna be less drama, that there's gonna be less sickness, that there's gonna be less disease, that there's gonna be less death or less tragedy or less betrayal. He, he said, I, I wanna get that straight from the very beginning. He says, if anyone will come after me, let them, what? Deny themselves, take up their what? Their cross and follow me. Nothing about that seems easier. Nothing about that seems convenient. He doesn't promise health and wealth if you follow him. So some people, when they follow Jesus and all hell breaks loose and life just falls apart and they're like, well, you know, where was God and why would God? And, and, and oftentimes it's, it's such a horrible thing because their pain is real. But at the same time, it's like, have we forgotten the storyline of history? And I think we have. That in a world where sin is, there's always gonna be pain and betrayal. There's always gonna be wars and rumors of wars. There's always gonna be things like people being hungry. And there's always gonna be these natural disasters that happen. There's gonna be disease. There's gonna be premature death. There's gonna be accidents. There's gonna be all of these things. Jesus never promised if you followed him that he was gonna clear those things up for you. So when some people have trouble or they just experience life. They decide, I'm walking away from faith. I'm finished with God because if God were real, God wouldn't. And God, God, there's no way he could let this happen. And it's like, this is the world that we live in. This is what happens in a world where sin is. And so Jesus said, listen, faith is gonna be inconvenient. I'm gonna offer you a better way, but don't confuse it with an easier way. I'm gonna ask you to deny yourself and take up your cross and that's not gonna be easy. He says, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. He said, there's gonna be deception and there's gonna be people who try to sell a false bill of goods and who try to offer people, you know, belief systems and value systems and ethics that, that kind of make people just feel good about their life and their, their choices. He says, you know, you just, just be aware of that. There's always gonna be that. There's always gonna be someone trying to sell you what seems to be an easier way, a bypass around the suffering of life. 
that promises you if you just have faith, things will be healthy for you and there'll be wealth for you and there'll be breakthrough for you and there'll be answered prayer for you. There's always gonna be those people. There have always been those people. He says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. It's gonna be lawless. It's gonna be loveless. Hate, it's gonna be loud. Bitterness, it's gonna be front row. Resentfulness is kind of gonna be the temperature of the crowd. It's just the way it is. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And then listen to what he says. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached. This is amazing. We'll be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Jesus, Jesus makes an incredible prediction. And even if someone takes a more lax dating of the gospels and they push the dating of the gospels even back to the end of the first century, this is still amazing what Jesus said. Though I would argue for an earlier dating of the gospels, it's still equally amazing what Jesus said. Jesus, as a carpenter from Nazareth in the backwaters of the Roman empire in the first century says, my message will circle the globe. Now, (laughs) imagine how far fetched that sounded in those days, but here we are. And it was absolutely true. He says, my message is global. It will cover the earth. And billions and billions and billions of people on this planet can attest to the fact that they've heard the story of Jesus. And then he he begins to get a little Jewish on them. And he quotes, you know, a, a reference out of the Old Testament book of Daniel. And he says, so when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel. He said, let the reader understand. And he he goes back to this passage where, you know, that the temple is defiled. Uh, It it was defiled under Antiochus Epiphanes uh, in the 160s BC. And he set up an altar to Zeus in the holy place. It happened somewhere around 63 BC with Pompey the Great when he went into the holy place and he defiled the temple. Uh, And Jesus said, you can expect that that's gonna happen again. It's happened before, it will happen again. And it did happen again. It would happen again just a few years later in AD 70. And we know from early church history that when Jesus, when Jesus said these words, and these words were written down, early Christians used these words. And when AD 70 approached and they saw the legions of Rome surrounding the city, and when they saw Rome getting ready to defile the temple, they remembered Jesus' words when he said this. And he said, when you see this getting ready to take place, get out of town, flee to the mountains, run and don't look back. And hundreds, perhaps thousands of lives were saved by Christians at that time, urging people to leave town based on this warning of Jesus. So Jesus' words came absolutely true. And in AD 70, Titus ordered that the temple be torn down and every stone was torn down. There was not one left on top of another, just like Jesus had said. He said, for there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. And immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Some Christians say that this is metaphor of political chaos. Some say it's literal and it could be nuclear winter, but here's the honest to God truth. And I'm just gonna be as open-handed as I can be and as honest as I can be with you. We don't know for sure. 
No one can know for sure what exactly Jesus was meaning by what he said. We can have ideas and we can game out scenarios, but we don't know for sure the details of what Jesus is trying to communicate. And anybody who tells you that they can know with 100% 100 certainty, they're not telling you the complete truth. And so he says this and it's like, oh my gosh, whatever he means, it feels serious. It sounds serious. He says, then there will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. But about that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus says, the only thing I can tell you that as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In a day where people, they really aren't interested in what's true. When people really are just so busy living their life that they, they can't be bothered with things of faith, that, that a faith system is just so inconvenient, they want no part of it. And when they think that the claims of Christianity and, and the faith are just so unbelievably unbelievable, that they turn a deaf ear. He says, the more you see that happening, the closer you are getting. And then he says, therefore, the whole point. I've told you the parts, but let me give you the point. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. In other words, when you see spiritual deception continue to happen, political chaos continue to happen, natural disasters continue to happen, persecution continue to happen, the increase of lawlessness and lovelessness in the world. He says, keep watch. Stand up straight, look in, pay attention, and live your life like it matters, because it does matter. He says, so you must also be ready. You must also be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The point of the whole passage is to keep your watch and to be ready. Keep your watch, pay attention, pay attention and be ready. You're not, not, you're not gonna know how it's all gonna play out and you, you're not gonna probably figure it out by the newspaper clippings. You're not gonna know. So keep your watch and be ready. And then Jesus will finish the rest of chapter 24 and 25 with the application of everything that he set up into this point. Very little explanation and a lot of implication, a lot of application. Jesus tells about the parable of the delayed master, a master who says to his servants, he said, I'm leaving. Not sure when I'm coming back, but I'm leaving you with responsibilities. I'm leaving you with a job to do. And Jesus tells the story and says, a wise servant, a good servant, a trusted steward. When the master leaves, he stays busy doing what his master asked him to do. He takes and assumes responsibility for the things that have been left under his care, that he is a steward while the master is gone. He does what he was asked to do and what he was told to do, but an unwise steward an unwise servant would just think, 
Maybe he's not coming back. <laughs> maybe, maybe he's dead. And you just decide to do what you want to do. You forsake your responsibility. You, you give no credence to what your master asked you to do while he was gone. Jesus said, in this story, be the good and faithful steward. Be the one who's doing what your master told you to be doing while he was away. He tells the parable of the bags of gold and a master was leaving and he pulls three of his best and he says, to you, I'm gonna give five bags of gold and to you, I'm gonna give two bags of gold and to you, I'm gonna give one bag of gold. And when I come back, I wanna see what you do with it. And the one who had five, while the master was gone, he, he turned it into 10. And the one who had two worked real hard and turned it into four. But the one who had one went and dug a hole and put it in there because they were afraid to do anything. And the master came back and looked at the ones who had actually leveraged their opportunity and had something to show for what they had been given. He said, you are good and faithful servants. What's the point of what Jesus is saying? The point is one day, someday, there will be a last day and it should influence how I live today. One day, someday, there will be a last day. It should influence how I live today. So live every day like it's your last day. I know it's cliche. It's almost like, why I came for that today? Yeah, that was Jesus's point. Live every day like it's your last day because endings are inevitable. Mine, yours, ours, history, endings are inevitable. And here's what I know about me and here's what I know about you. If you knew today was your last day, you would approach it incredibly different than you lived the day before. The things that seem like a big deal the day before, not such a big deal today. Your whole priority system is gonna gain clarity. You're gonna let go of some things you should let go of. You're gonna extend forgiveness where you should extend forgiveness. You're gonna pull those that you love close and you're gonna tell them that you love them. The things that matter most would matter most. So live every day like that. And when you live every day like that, you'll wake up the next day. If you get to wake up the next day, if I get to wake up the next day and you'll be glad that you lived that day like it was your last day. This is Jesus' point. So keep your watch, be ready, live today as though it's your last day. Make a difference, leave it all on the field. Don't leave a stone unturned, leverage your opportunities, take risks. Live your life and aim to be faithful and fruitful. Be faithful. Trust God enough that you're willing to obey Him. Trust God enough that you believe that He is who He said He is, that He's gonna do what He says He's gonna do, and you order your life around that. Faithfulness is just showing up. Just show up, man. Show up. Show up, lady. Show up. 90% of being faithful is just showing up. Sometimes it's getting back up once you fall on your face, but get up and let's be busy doing what it is that we've been called to do. Because what we believe, what we believe ultimately as Christians, it should affect how we behave, right? But what I believe about tomorrow should influence how I live today. We believe that Jesus he came, he died, was buried and was raised from the dead, that he ascended to the Father. And that one day he said, I will come again. And it is that belief that Jesus says, keep your watch and be ready. 
do what you've been called to do. Don't waste another day. Don't waste your life with the things that are not the most important. Live your life like it's the last day. And when you get another day, you'll be glad you lived the previous day just that way. Heavenly Father, help our beliefs, these things that we say we believe as Christians, Lord, I pray that they would impact and influence the way that we live our lives. I pray that we would be so confident that Jesus is coming again, that we understand that the mission is important, that every day is an opportunity to make a difference, that every day to live with what's most important in mind. God, give us that perspective. Give us that type of determination, I pray. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, and everybody said,